There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Why should a perfectly good parent inside a marriage be potentially less so outside of the marriage? Custody seems to equate with ownership of the child or children. Is it so? It seems that the terms child custody and dispute go hand in hand. A few provocative questions to tee us up for today's podcast, where our topic is child custody, a potential emotional and legal quagmire. And I'm pleased to welcome my two guests and colleagues, clinical psychologists Anthony Townsend and Giada Del Fabro. Both are in private practice here in Johannesburg and actively involved in forensic psychology. And in this instance, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but we'll, discussing, we'll be discussing what is ostensibly an issue that should fall within the domain of civil forensic psychology as opposed to criminal. Anthony and Giada, welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us. We'll no doubt address the questions posed up front that lead us directly into the conversation I wanted to have today. But before we get into some of the more emotive issues and certainly issues that make this process a potentially emotional one for all parties concerned, I just want to note an article that Anthony wrote and Giada wrote a commentary for in South African Psychiatry back in 2017, which was titled in part, Navigating the Kaleidoscope of Conflict. So that kind of sets the tone, and that was in relation to child custody evaluations. Now, Anthony, you began the article by pointing out that amongst complaints against mental health professionals in recent years, and I'm I'm not sure to what extent that is the status quo, unprofessional conduct related to biased reports regarding child custody disputes was a leading cause. So would you care to comment, as I think this issue underlies the need for a careful review of the role of the mental health professional, be they psychologist or psychiatrist, in this process? Of course, Chris. And it's with great misfortune that we see that not only has that trend stayed, but it's actually increased over time, especially in recent memory. I mean, Jared and I were were saying earlier, we've actually noticed both for ourselves and for many colleagues for many of them, the only times they've ever activated any form of malpractice insurance is actually with relation to civil forensic complaints. And it's unfortunately because so much of that process, rather than being treatment-focused, is adversarial in nature. You've got two parents who are very upset with each other and are trying to protest, protect the best interests of their children, sometimes in, in their minds against the other parent in many respects. And because of that, whenever you have two people who have very different ideas of what the right outcome is, When you create any kind of intervention or you give any kind of opinion, you almost invariably upset one in the favor of the other and by virtue of that fact become a target of the conflict itself. So it stops being about just between these two people and it starts widening and widening and widening. And so many people end up becoming part of a very problem-determined, multifaceted system that gets worse and worse. Sure. So I've used that word, sure, because it does sound like it morphs into something. uh, Which one? almost sometimes doesn't have control over. It just kind of, you know, as I said, morphs and gets worse and deeper and worse. Jada, your, your, your thoughts? Yes, I think it's sometimes difficult to get that full stop at the end of all, all of it. And generally what you find is that when money runs out, then maybe there's a pause. Um, because these, you know, if you're involved in a legal battle and suing professionals, um, you know, it's costly. So sometimes that is what what helps halt things, but what you find is I think there's a general in the case and the cases that come to us are generally quite acrimonious right. for the most part between the parties, and there's almost a projection of whatever's happened in the relationship onto the process. So the mistrust, the antagonism, the anger, um, the resentment, and so I mean the children get lost, yes, and the professionals become a substitute for potentially the partner that um, is being separated from. You know, I mean, a whole host of interesting issues there, not least of which is money. So it's almost a question of how deep are your pockets. That's how long this will go on for. And I'm, I'm taking a very cynical view, of course, because at the end of the day, one would like to think 
that if the best interests of the child are paramount, then that's all that really matters. Um, and we'll come back to best interests of the, of the child. So, as I said, that's, that's kind of like a, a cynical view. But the truth of the matter is there are practical realities in terms of finances. And it's just unfortunate that the children, as you say, often get lost because then this almost becomes a proxy. I mean, the kids are almost like the vehicle to have the war, in a sense. And I think that what troubles me at times is that everything that you see in that conflictual process probably captures the tail end of what has otherwise potentially been an okay marriage. And then there's this selective focus on everything that went wrong that led to the divorce but if you were to capture it in terms of how bad it was for how long, it might not necessarily cost. I mean, right, some marriages are bad up front. But I mean, in general, you're capturing a, a kind of a slice, Anthony. I, yeah, you're very much getting a snapshot of the worst elements of, of both parents' experiences of each other and of themselves. Yes. And as you say, it gets played out in this, in this really acrimonious uh, dynamic between them where everybody feels like they're opposing, everybody feels like they're fighting – Rather than, as you say, trying to protect the best interests of the child, which is more often than not served by the child having a meaningful relationship with both parents Absolutely. in some way. And whenever the good in either parent gets lost, the child is getting deprived of half of their lives and half of themselves in some respects. Yeah, and that's a real issue for me is, is, is how much gets lost in the process and how much is kind of put to one side because it surely wasn't all bad. You, you clearly got married. There was something that attracted you to the other party to the point that you wanted to have kids together. Sometimes it happens uh, in erratum, and then one does get married. Or, you know, hopefully it's a consequence of two people who care and love for each other who want to have a child or, or, or children. And somehow that all just kind of gets lost. And it's all about what didn't work, and that becomes everything. It's almost like a, a selective abstraction in a way. You know, a cognitive distortion where you're taking one thing and you're making it everything. And you would think that the system was wise enough to say, no, 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 wait a sec. It can't be just that. What else was there? And how do we get back to that as a foundation for how we move forward in terms of the best interest? And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's where the conversation is taking me. Jada, Anthony, jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think what's sad also is that, you know, for a child, the narrative around their conception, their birth, um, being wanted, yes. um, is it's, it's linked to the narrative around the relationship between the parents. So when you find there's this selective splitting, so to speak, where it's all bad and this person is terrible, um, it does impact the child's narrative around their origins and their life story yes. um, in a way which really deprives them of that the goodness that uh, you know Anthony was referring to that um, there was something really good yes mm -hmm. that they were they, that they were brought into mm -hmm. and I think for me that's the great sadness in a sense I don't know Anthony what do you think but I mean that's how I experience it when I'm just talking about it now and thinking about it where's the goodness I think it's exactly that because we know that for most kids, especially when they're very young, they think egocentrically. They can't help but think they have this role to play and this responsibility for everything that happens around them. And so when they're placed in a position where they've got two parents fighting with each other who kind of can't stand each other in these moments, so many kids, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally by the parents, start thinking them of themselves as this catalyst of conflict and I cause all of these problems. And if it wasn't for me, maybe all of this wouldn't have, have broken apart this way. And they grow up, as Jada says, with this narrative that's going to influence them not only now in their lives but later on without getting to reflect on, as you say, all the positive experiences they could have with one parent or the other. And I guess from the parent side, what's really, really unfortunate is more often than not, who they are as a partner gets conflated with who they are as a parent. Yes, mm -hmm. I think that is very important and I will touch on that. But I want to get back to basics because I think that uh, – and I just want to set the scene – um, there's a book written by or edited by Sean Kaliski called Psycholegal Assessment in South Africa. And he, in fact, authored the, the, the chapter in, in the book on child custody and access. And I wanted to note something that he'd said to sort of frame the discussion and just keep it in mind. But I was hit by the word access. And I started to think about language that we use, you know, access, visitation rights. They're so formal and cold in a way. <laughs> 
you know. Um, I spend time with my kids. I don't access them, you know. Um, I spend time with my kids. I don't have visitation rights. It's got such a connotation, which for me is is is, is prejudicial in a way. I don't know. I'm, mm. I'm deviating a little bit, but I wanted to get stuck on. I wanted to focus on these words because I kind of got stuck on them, and I, 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 I have an issue with them. I'm not mm. sure what what else one could use or what other terms one could use, but there is something in the language that makes this process um, adversarial in a way. Mm. I don't know. Maybe, mm. maybe I'm. Uh, I don't think you're wrong about that. I think Giada and I would have found the same experience for people because just the nature of the language creates the idea that there's already this barrier between you and your child. That's the word. And I think that's, that's unbearable for any parent to have to consider. It is, it's a strange position that we would find ourselves in when we think about saying, yeah, we're going to talk about it when you're going to visit your child as if we're somehow now being put between (laughs) you and your child, which is the last place in the world we'd actually want to be. It's, it's actually about facilitating a relationship. And so that language does. It creates this idea that there are these walls, these barriers, these boundaries that are being created that interfere with the warmth and the connection that should exist between you and your child and, and in this reconstructed or post-divorce family. I imagine Jada's had similar experience. I also think that, um, I have had similar experiences, but as a mental health professional, psychologist working in this area, it is quite legally dominated. Yes. And if we think of the legal system, it is, I mean, I think there is attempts also in the kind of civil custody work, um, but, but not there yet. It's very sort of by nature litigious and acrimonious and antagonistic. So it would be great if we could go to court and speak in our language, <laughs> right? <laughs> and bring bring sort of this. Um, I, th- I mean, we try, but there's bring the sensitivity and mm. like the holding of of a kind of more integrated space where we can see, you know, the good, the bad, the the challenge, the strengths, the weaknesses. But often that gets has to get pigeonholed or translated into language, which which does take away from from those elements. Mm. You see, I think we work in a more nuanced way. Mm. The law is black and white, yeah. mm. it seems to me. And I think that what you said now is very important. The law, by its very nature, although it's looking for justice, is adversarial. And it's, it's, it's a winner-take-all kind of situation. And I think that's why the custody process is so difficult, because it then becomes a winner-takes-all. I've got custody. You don't. Mm. You are the non-custodian parent. I'm the custodian parent. I hold the power. Yeah, mm. It's exactly that. You often hear parents saying, I should be the primary parent. And that's got more to do in their minds with the, the, the kind of role they play as opposed to the quantity of time they have with a child or the nature of the bond. And that, that's a very unfortunate way of having to look at it because it diminishes the idea of the other parent being significant to this child in their own unique ways. You know. So I want to propose something that I've come across where – and I'm not sure it will ever happen. But we have a situation where no custody is awarded, where in fact both parents are part of a parenting plan with roles and responsibilities determined on the basis of who they are and what they are best able to offer in terms of the child, which would happen naturally in a marriage. So how do we, in a divorce situation, recreate as close as we can what would happen naturally in a marriage? Because, I mean, no two parents think the same way. I mean – they're probably on the same page for the big things, but they have their own variations. So it would be a situation where you're both parents, you're both good enough, there's no custody, there's a parenting plan with roles and responsibilities. Now, I don't know if that's an idealistic uh, uh, um, thought on my part, but I have seen that kind of language coming into discussions around these kinds of issues. I don't know what your thoughts mm. are on that. I mean, I think, yes, and... That would be great in, in, in theory, and I think it's, it could be worked towards, but obviously centered around that particular child or those yes. children and where they are at. So in terms of their needs, in terms of what challenges they may have. I mean, if you've got, just for example, a child that's quite anxious and he's going to need a lot of sort of more structure than another kind of child or routine, then, then you know, you'd have to take that into account. Correct. But, I mean, I think that's that would be great if it was kept sort of out of um, a more adversarial space. So I think, before Anthony jumps in, I mean, that's the more nuanced approach where we are. So, for example, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to eating disorders. I always tend to do that, but I suppose that's <laughs> a lot of the clinical work that I do. F- 
For every sufferer, there is a unique story. And as much as you have broad general principles in terms of intervention, you're looking at the individual mm. and you're saying, right, how do I tailor a package for this individual? I'm not sure that the law necessarily does that, and I don't want to preempt what the law might or might not be, be doing in those situations. But I think what I'm hearing, Giada, is exactly that, where we would take each individual and say, right, for this particular child, that's what they need. Parent A, you do this. Parent B, you do that. Because that's what would probably happen anyway mm. in a marriage were there no divorce. Mm. Anthony? It's exactly that, Chris. And the, the difficulty we'll have is that we not only want it highly individualized for the child, but in our professions, we also recognize this is going to evolve over time. So there's going to be one care arrangement that's going to be really helpful to you in early childhood. But as you go into middle childhood, adolescence, and later on, your relationships and your needs are going to change. And we have to have an understanding that we can't create this one-size-fits-all package for everyone across time. And that, I think, can be very difficult from a legal perspective, whereas from a psychological and medical perspective, we feel it's the only meaningful way. No, no, absolutely correct. Because, I mean, a, a judgment is at a particular point in time based on the evidence that is presented. Mm. And so a decision is made. But I think what you're saying is, look, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a static, but yet it's not a static situation. Mm. It's a situation that evolves and develops and needs change. And so to what extent does any particular court order factor that in, in terms of providing for that in a way that doesn't lead to further conflict mm. down the line. Mm. So I know that we are sort of unpacking this and we're, we're looking at it, but I think it's important that we put these kinds of issues on the table because the truth is if we want things to change, we have to identify some of the issues that we feel should be changed and should be looked at. But I want to get back to some of the basics that take us to Sean Kaliski's chapter. And he says... In Section 28.2 of the Bill of Rights, and I'm going to quote from that, a child's best interests are of paramount importance in every matter concerning the child. And coming back to what we would said earlier, I sometimes think the child gets lost, mm. and I think something else happens. And so I think it's always very important to bring people back to mm. the fact that this is about the children and their best interests and their needs. And if you've got stuff that you need to sort out between the two of you, take it somewhere else. Sort that out. And if you need to go into your own individual work to come to terms with certain realities, do that. But when it comes to the children, focus and try to be the parents that you always wanted to be mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Anthony? Yeah, it's exactly that. And it's remarkable how difficult that becomes for people in such emotionally charged environments where even in their own mind, that's what they think they're doing. But very often they're, they're mixing those th two things up. They, they're starting to think of who their, their former partner is to them and thinking that's the same thing as what this child experiences from the parents. And oftentimes they're completely different in many respects. You know, you might not like them, but this child loves them in ways that you can't necessarily experience. And while you might think you're appreciating that, maybe when you get cross and say bad things about them, you're not really appreciating that they have a different feeling towards them than you do. And that is influencing their lives in some way. I think that's very profound, actually, Gianna. Yeah, I mean, children are much more perceptive and uh, sensitive probably than they're given credit for in a lot of situations. So what you find is that because, I mean, as a professional, you're entering that process after a time, so things have been happening, um, it often makes it difficult to assess the children because in a way that they are able to articulate their kind of authentic True feelings about the situation because they've they've been a part of that process already where there's been a confounding of parent with partner and so sometimes it is quite challenging to to feel certain about um, I mean the child feels quite conflicted already in that space and sometimes we'll just opt not to not to participate because they've been exposed to that that process before. Well, I think it's 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 also a question of divided loyalties. Mm. And at the end of the day, trying to have children articulate what they really feel, which potentially opens up the discussion to say, look, this is where we're at. Mm. How are we going to move past mm. this? But then we're getting into counseling, mediation, and, and <laughs> therapy, which is not the role of the forensic yeah. psychologist. Um, Kaliski goes on to quote section 28.1, and it affirms that particular section that every child has the right to family care or parental care or appropriate alternative care when removed from the family environment. And I think the key word for me there is care, mm. family care. 
And I think that in the midst of an adversarial battle, I wonder to what extent that gets lost. I think to a great extent, unfortunately. I mean, one of the things that we've seen has been a big trend in the way this has been understood and researched and conceptualized is that, you know, there's this term that permeates all of of care and contact evaluations in child custody, which is alienation. And everyone uses this term all the time. And in 1987, when this first came out from Gardner, he, he said there's this thing called parental alienation syndrome. He almost wanted to create it as this diagnosis. And our thinking has evolved to be, it's not really a disease entity, it's not a diagnosis. You know, in the present, it's actually considered an atypical form of child abuse. It's, it's, it's yes. considered a deprivation for exactly the reason you mentioned, is that when you negatively influence a child's relationship with a parent who has something to offer them, um, you know, a s- social capital, as they call it in legal terms, where they've got emotional resources and psychological resources that they can give to this child to help them, when you deprive them of that, that's in in many respects negatively impacting on a child because you're depriving them of the care that they rightly deserve, which is really awful, and it it creates massive consequences for kids later in life. Well, I think it's important to actually look at this parental alienation syndrome Mm. because I think people have spoken about it. As you say, it's not a formal diagnostic entity. I think Gardner had obviously encountered a phenomenon, and he'd given it a term or a, 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 a label in a sense, and he had specific criteria that seemed to indicate that this is what was going on. And I think that uh, it hasn't found or hasn't settled into the parlance, and it's certainly not a formal diagnosis. Um, but maybe one could just talk about some of the features, and, and, and I've made a note to myself. There's a conscious denigration by one parent of the other. Hmm. So I think that's one of the sort of features. But when you speak about that, is that not just on a spectrum? of mm. how adversarial situations evolve mm. in terms of two parents talking about one another. Maybe, Jada, you can. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about um, parental alienation, you know, in 1987 being sort of a starting point, yeah. I don't think it's anything new, to be honest. Yes. I think it's because, as we've spoken about, because of the adversarial nature, because of the acrimony that happens, I think it's it's probably always been a feature of, of divorce battles. Right. Um, probably what's happened, though, is, is there's an acknowledgement um, of the impact on the child more. Perhaps it has been more, you know, child, child-focused, child child-centered. Uh, and also, I mean, I'm not um, sort of bad-mouthing the legal community here, but I do think it has also been taken on board as a tool yes. with which to, to um, you know, fight, fight the fight. Fight the battle. Mm. No, I think, I think that the truth is, as a parent – when you walk into the court, you're entering a different kind of arena mm. where it is a battle. It's as simple as that. There's for, there's against. And I think when you walk into that space, that's what you're going to encounter unless you can come to an understanding where you simply walk in and say to the judge, here's the agreement, rubber stamp it. But once you cross that threshold into an adversarial situation, that's what you're going to get. And, you know, I could be critical of the lawyers, but that's like the um, the scorpion and the frog, right? Mm, totally, yeah. <laughs> For people who don't know the story, very briefly, the scorpion says to the frog, will you take me across the river? And the frog says, definitely not. You're going to sting me. The scorpion says, no, no, I need to get across. I need you to do that. The frog says, okay, no problem. They get across, bam, the scorpion stings him. The frog says, what the hell? Why did you do that? The scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion. Mm-hmm. And so one has to understand. And so as much as one can look at the legal profession, that is what they do. Mm. And I think that I'm not saying that their intention is destructive, but I think at the end of the day, they've got a job to do, mm. they've got a brief, they've got a client, and they have to act as much in the best interest of the child, in the best interest of the client as well, potentially, and maybe sometimes client trumps child. I don't know. I don't have a lawyer sitting here, so I, I, and I don't want to assume. And I'm not bad. I'm not generalizing to all. No, no, I sure. think, with, like with any profession, <clears throat> there's professionals who will, you know, be less scrupulous than others in terms yes. of, of of how they practice. So, um, you know, I've come across lawyers that um, are, do try really hard to to resolve conflict. matters and conflict yes. before it gets to sort of an all-out war in court. Well, I think one must never exclude the client. Because a lawyer may say, but lawyers have choices, where lawyers might say, you know what, I'm not going to take this case on. Mm. This is just going to go in the wrong direction, and I'm not going to get involved. 
Others will say, okay, if that's what you want as a client, we'll, we'll go for it. So as, as much as one might look at the lawyer, you've got to look at the client as well. Yeah. And then I think it's about the, the lawyer-client relationship and how that gets managed and how the lawyer understands where their responsibility and where their loyalty lies. Mm. Anthony, I think it's exactly that. And I know there's a lot of cases where we see you know, the client is in this very vindictive mode or they're very angry and the, the lawyer is actually being quite reasonable. Um, you can actually hear through the, through the client who's remarking, my attorney says maybe we shouldn't fight, maybe we should do it. And not very long from then you find that that attorney has been fired um, because they're not colluding mm-hmm. with this angry process of, and this destructive process where they're actually trying to uphold something good. So, you know, in some cases it's ironic because they, they're not incentivized Right. To, to try and create something a little bit more conciliatory, which, which can be really problematic, whereas a lawyer could be incentivized to go along with whatever the narrative of the client is, prioritize that, yes. and, and go out to all-out war without that necessarily being what's actually best in the child, um, and, and that is unfortunate. And you would think that this would be something that would be first and foremost – under these kind of circumstances, but other features of parental alienation, child, what I call child capture, where the child becomes the voice of the alienator. And there does mm-hmm. seem to be a gender situation where it seems that fathers are more likely to be the alienated parent, uh, not exclusively, but there does seem to, to, to be that. But I think that at the end of the day, and I've certainly had firsthand um, eyeball experience of what looks exactly like that, watching two parents with a child, and, and, and it's, 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 I found it quite distressing, actually, mm. to, to, to kind of see it. Um, and what you understand is that they're very complex dynamics that operate within a system. And to what extent this is just an extreme form of what kind of exists at various levels in any kind of conflict situation. Um, so I would see it as, as, as on an extreme side of, 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 of a spectrum of difficulties. And the other side of the spectrum is two parents who say, listen, it's not working out. We need to move on. What are we going to do to make sure the kids are okay? You've got your life. I've got my life. Let's sort things mm. out and let's work towards a settlement. Mm. You know, mm. I don't know if that's the majority of cases or because obviously you see a very biased mm. sample, you know, and by the time parents get to you, um, we're not in that kind of situation. How do parents get to you, by the way? Oh, well, I, th- I think there's many channels. Um, in some cases, it will be court-ordered. Right. In some cases, they will be in the course of a process, and their attorneys will seek out various options that right. people can pursue. So they often, you, you'll often get calls from attorneys saying, hey, we're, we're trying to look at three or four people who we're going to recommend, and they choose between them. Or sometimes you're actually approached by the parties themselves before they've even gotten to that legal part where they're saying, we, right. we want to try and do this. In the least adversarial way possible, we don't want to go to court, but we do need an opinion because we don't feel that we're being objective. Um, some will actually acknowledge it and say, that's I don't a, think I can think about this. That's properly. a very mature approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, so, sorry, yeah. Carry on. yeah. So that's exactly it. I think for me, those are the common ways is through the attorneys, through the court itself, or, or by joint appointment uh, by, by the parties themselves. I mean, I don't know if there's any mm-hmm. others Jada is aware of. No, I mean, I think that, that does cover it. Um, I mean, mutual agreement would suggest that we're halfway towards final agreement, if that's the way it works, where two parents say, you know what, we can't be objective. We need to bring somebody in. And so that's what we're going to do, and and, and let's take guidance. Mm -hmm. And specifically around sometimes wanting to get professional guidance on on the best interests of the child in terms of how they would make arrangements um, outside of a court process. Right. So – as much as we've got parental alienation syndrome, you've also written about the resist-refuse dynamic, which mm-hmm. I think is very interesting because to some extent that may look like parental alienation, but it's not. Mm. Do you want to just touch on that a bit, uh, Anthony? Of course. I mean, we, we know that obviously in psychology we always come up with all these conceptual terms and jargon, and the, the sort of new one that we use, which is the vogue, is, is gatekeeping. Right. And so what they say is you, you get this gate, gatekeeping spectrum. Facilitative gatekeeping basically means you guys are co-parenting in a way that's mutually respectful. You're both trying to give the best possible relationship with the other parents and the child, and you're pretty flexible. You're very reasonable. And then they say on the other side, you've got restrictive gatekeeping. So restrictive gatekeeping would be very close to alienation. It's right. that you're not supportive of the child having a good relationship with the other parent. You actively denigrate them. You try and restrict contact, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what often happens is that when a child doesn't want to see a parent, the, as, as Giada was saying, this gets automatically placed down as this is alienation. Right. The reason my child doesn't want to see me or spend time with me is because you're negatively influencing it. Right. So they automatically blame the other parent. But what we've come to realize, as we all know, is that these are really complex dynamics that happen in a, in a family. So that is sometimes the case. But there's also a possibility that the child is refusing contact with their parent, not because of the influence of the other parent, but because of their own experience of mm. this parent. Right. So like an easy example would be one parent is, is abusing substances, so they're very emotionally unavailable, they're very inconsistent, and sometimes they're aggressive and they don't have memory of it because they were too intoxicated. Right. Another child doesn't want to visit them. And that parent might think, okay, that's because your mom or your dad is influencing you. And the child's actually saying, no, it's, it's not that. It's that I don't like being around this parent because they're not the best version of themselves right now. And that's hard for me. And so they develop a resist and refuse dynamic. Their, their reasoning is actually very different from being negatively influenced by the other parents. And it can be also that the parent has taken in a new partner. Exactly. Which can be problematic mm -hmm. as well. So there can be a whole host of reasons that are child based mm -hmm. and not about how the other parent views the other parent. Mm -hmm. And so I think the voice of the child is actually very, very important in, in, in all of this. But I want to get back to something basic, really, because where we started out was the fact that healthcare professionals are often accused of bias and it becomes a, a, an issue for reporting to the Health Professionals Council of South Africa. So I know, Anthony, you've got very specific views and Giada, probably you do too, on what is required for a professional to involve themselves as a professional in these kinds of situations, everything from family law to the Children's Care Act, the Children's Act, should I say. Mm. Um, so your, your, your thoughts on that, Anthony? Well, I think, I think it's a really important question, Chris, because we, we know in South Africa we don't have a formal registration to be a forensic psychologist just yet. Right. So why that's important is because it's not automatically a part of our training necessarily. So you qualify as a psychologist. That doesn't necessarily mean you're easily equipped for this sort of assessment because it's quite different in some respects. So unless you train internationally, as I think like Giada and some of our colleagues have done, they've, they've really got a, a quite a comprehensive knowledge of it. If you're in South Africa, what's required of you is actually to do a lot of additional training, ideally to seek supervision from people who are highly experienced in this. But then temperamentally, what you'll come to notice is that you have to be willing to shift your mindset. Because when you're trained as a therapist, you will take everything that the person you're seeing says as truth, right. as words. You're going to enter their reality. You're going to accept that you're going to work with them on that. Whereas in this forensic setting, you're actually doing something a little bit different. You're trying to be as genuinely objective as you possibly can, where you're, you're trying as best you can to see a truth beyond that person's narrative. So you're thinking differently. You're questioning everything. You're not necessarily empathizing the entire time. And you're trying to be a lot more neutral and investigative mm -hmm. in the way that you're operating, which for some people is easier, and for some people it's a little bit more tricky to be able to do. No, but I think these are <clears throat> profound shifts in terms of where you come from. Because if you come from a healing, therapeutic uh, background, that's instinctively what you do. Having said that, though, I do think that the assessment process does offer opportunity for healing mm. and for a therapeutic. But the truth of the matter is that as a professional, you've got to be objective. And I think mm -hmm. that's maybe – and Giada, you, just yeah. your thoughts before I want to differentiate between No, witnesses. definitely. It's a shift. And I don't know that all – uh, professionals are able to do that or people interested in doing this work yes. can make that shift. Um, I do think the sort of therapeutic skills that as a clinical psychologist, if that is your profession entering into this kind of work can help in terms of rapport building, in terms of, you know, working with specifically the children. Um, but I do think it is a shift and it's a glaring, it's a, it's a big problem. People are interested in doing this kind of work, but it's basically a do-it-yourself because if I look at sort of master's components of master's training, there's no real dedicated – I mean, there may be one or two lectures on it, but yep. it's, it's not <laughs> preparing you for that mindset for kind of the rigorous assessment and also the scientific method mm -hmm. because I think that's what gets – I think people think, you know, we, we go, we talk to parents, we talk to children and then do some tests. But actually it's, it's, it's a scientific process where you are triangulating all sorts of information mm -hmm. – to support or reject hypotheses or not or mm. neither. And it's, it really is that mindset. And so it, it's important in, in conducting the assessment and even coming to your findings and your report that that is, that is the space that you enter into. Well, I think that um, 
the issue of a fact witness versus an expert witness. Because what we're talking about now are expert witnesses. And in order to be an expert witness, clearly there's a different requirement um, to being a professional who's therapeutic. Mm. So I, I just wanted to touch on these issues of fact and expert witness because it's important. Anthony? Mm. Well, I think it's a hugely important one that often gets overlooked because many people aren't aware of the difference between them. And what we see is that professionals who are helping in any respect, whether they're psychiatrists, GPs, social workers, psychologists, anyone who's involved with this family at some point is very likely to be dragged in to this whole situation. And they don't always know what they can and cannot do and what they should and should not do. And very often they'll get asked the question, so you've been seeing this parent for two years, and they'll go, do you think that they should have access to their child? And you get put in this position of making this really big decision that you didn't necessarily ask for, and then you give an opinion, and then you go to court, and these people just kind of lay into you the whole time about it. And that's an awful experience for a lot of professionals because that makes them want to move away from mm. these situations. And when you've got fewer people helping, there's mm. less chance of this actually changing. So you actually end up entrenching the conflict because everyone wants to run away from right. it. And so having this knowledge of the difference between the two helps a lot. So a fact witness is the more common experience that most professionals will have. And what that means is you are not appointed by the courts to answer a particular question. In this case, what's the best care arrangement for the child? That was not what you were appointed for. So that's you, key. That's the, Who appoints you? Exactly. Right. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So yeah, you, you, you were appointed because you're just trying to help this person with something in their life, whatever that may be. And so for that reason, your mandate is therapeutic. You're trying to help them. And if your mandate is therapeutic, there is a degree to which you're inherently subjective because you're invested in a different outcome. You're invested in what's the best thing for this person that I'm dealing with because that's how you'd have to think. And because you're therefore subjective, you can't give opinion on these other things that you were never appointed to do. That doesn't mean you can't give information. though. You can say, this was my diagnosis or this is what we talked about in treatment. And you can, you can talk about the very facts mm -hmm. of this person. You know, this is their history. This is how often I saw them. This is the therapy. This is how I thought they improved or didn't improve. And you can keep it really simple. Mm -hmm. And that can be helpful in the sense that it helps an evaluator or a court just know something about a person. But what we often find, and I think this is the case, at least in my experience, is that courts and especially evaluators are increasingly respectful of not interfering with treatment relationships. I know for, for a lot of evaluators, because we treat people ourselves, we, we want some information because it's part of, as Jada said, getting as much information as you can to make a decision. But we try not to put anyone in a position where you're going to say something that's going to mess with your treatment. That, that should be prioritized. I think that's key. Because mm. you're giving information, but you don't want to prejudice the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, it, it would be so counterproductive to do so. So we often, I, I know a lot of colleagues often say, they're like, listen, I'm going to interview you, I'm going to chat to you. But anything you don't want to share, you don't, you don't have to. Um, let, let's protect the, the treatment relationship Well, I'm showing that I did my due diligence. That's what matters. So this is now dealing with the fact witness. Exactly. Who could be the treating psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, whoever. Who's quite different. Sorry, Jody. Yeah. No, and that can be a complex issue because, mm. you know, depending on, you know, for the, the treating professional, they have to get the consent from their, <clears throat> from their patient, from right. their client. Mm. And, um, you know, if they subpoena it, well, what does that mean? And so it, it, it does, it does make a lot of professionals very nervous mm. if they're not doing this kind of work and their yes. client or their patient gets involved in litigation or, or this kind of. Well, I, th situation. I think mm. for a treating professional, the last thing you'd want to do is prejudice your patient. Mm. Yeah. So you're thinking, well, geez, am I going to get sucked into this? And I, you know, am I, am I, am I going to say the wrong thing? Mm. So I think it's very important how the assessor, the person undertaking the assessment, actually involves the fact witness to make sure that they are protected from inadvertently stepping across a line that could prejudice the therapeutic relationship. And I'm not sure that that's fully appreciated in terms of the role of the uh, assessor undertaking the, the, the assessment to say, if there's an existing therapeutic relationship, I need to also act in a way that protects that. Mm. Well, we, we hope that, that people will. And as Jada says, different people to different degrees do it. But that's definitely the ideal, that you have that mindset because that's going to be more helpful long term. And that's also where the difference comes in because the fact witness simply has to speak to this is how many times I saw them. This mm. was my, my opinion on their treatment. And that's it. Whereas the expert witness is placed in a different role. Right. You've been appointed purely to answer one particular question. And you're assessing the whole family without a focus on what either parent wants, but what the child or children need. That's what you're concerning yourself with. 
And because you're not invested subjectively in a therapeutic outcome for anyone, you've got this totally different stance. And as Giada was saying, that's where the art of therapy is, is set aside for the science of mm. psychology. Yes. And so you start using multiple measures, what we call triangulating data. You're testing all these different sources of information to get a perspective and a picture or a snapshot, as you were saying, of this family to answer this unique question. And when you do that, you're drawing upon fact witnesses as one of many sources of information, but your job is to make a call on this. Whereas the fact witness, this was never actually a responsibility you had to hold, and, and it's actually okay to step back from it because they, they're going to appoint someone who is going to come in with a different perspective and a different set of eyes looking at the same problem. Right. That's very important. Jody, you made an interesting comment uh when you wrote the commentary on, on Anthony's article, which looked at the way in which courts understand one or either parent or both who may have treating psychologists or psychiatrists and how they view that in terms of their capacity to parent mm -hmm. and that a diagnosis doesn't necessarily prejudice you in that sense or doesn't disqualify you. Do you want to elaborate sure. a little bit? I mean, we can look at statistics population-wise demographically around the prevalence of mental health issues, but it's, it's well represented. And it is unfortunate that, um, and we go back to the adversarial nature because I think what often comes up is if one parent has had mental health challenges yes. or a diagnosis, so bipolar depression, um, that often gets used against them mm -hmm. by the other partner, right. possibly. And um, then kind of the onus is on that person to almost prove that it's, that it doesn't make them a bad parent. Right. What we need to understand is that someone could have a diagnosis of any, every, any kind, even if we look at sort of personality disorder diagnoses. But if that person can show that they are managing, they, if, they, if they need to be on medication, they're consistently taking their medication, they're in therapy, then you know, the assessment proceeds on looking at their parenting capacity because the potential – and again, it's not a guarantee that even you – know, that, that because we know with um, sort of depression, it can happen along a continuum. So it's sure. not necessarily that it's going to be devastating if the, the um, parent has a depressive episode. But it's almost as if that person's starting on the back foot. Yes. If, if, mm. if that is out in the open. So, and that is very unfortunate because um, <clears throat> this is something I do express to, in, as part of the process, that. You know, because what you want really is both parties to be as open as possible, yes. you know, with the stuff they're comfortable sharing so you can have kind of an accurate um, evaluation. So it's to, to sort of normalize that and say, you know, we, we get it and it doesn't necessarily make you a bad parent. We're going to look at your parenting capacity, but, but that can be on the table. Well, I suppose that's where good information from a fact witness, mm. which doesn't comment on the capacity to parent, but looks at the facts of the psychiatric history mm. of one of the parents, such as it is, and to what extent it's stable, managed, and taken care of. And I suppose all of these things have to be factored in, in terms of your assessment. So when you get into the assessment process, I mean, obviously one is looking at family dynamics, and you're looking at the child's relationship with, with either parent. That would be the essence of, 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 of what you do, Anthony? That's very much it. I mean, when we try to boil all of the complexities down, which is something that assessors often get lost in, it's one of the criticisms that can be made against us, is that um, you, you start talking about answers to questions that weren't really relevant to the assessment. Really what you're looking at is what are this, are this child or these children's unique needs at this time? What are the capacities of either parent and what are the relationships between the parents and the children like? That's really what you're trying to get an, a gauge of so that you can then say, so the following care arrangement seems to be best suited to actually fitting with that. And the way you ultimately arrive at some of those is by looking at multiple sources of information. Mm -hmm. So you'll do lots of interviews with the parents, interviews with the children, psychometric testing with the parents, psychometric testing with the children, interactional analyses between the children and the parents, home visits, and then you often review collateral information. So that would be maybe checking in with treating professionals right. or reading documentation and reports. And really what you're trying to do is get as many different sources as you can because you're not going to base a finding just off an interview. You're going to be able to say, hey, look, I'm fairly confident in this information scientifically because this finding that I have, I found X, and that corresponds with data from this clinical interview, the home observation, the psychometrics, this person's interviews, and this collateral information. So all of these different areas are converging around this 
which can increase our confidence that this is a fair and accurate reflection of what seems to be going on, and therefore we can have this recommendation with, with a fair amount of certainty that it will be the best option. Right. And at what age does the child's voice become powerful? How old should a child be, and to what extent do you place emphasis on what the child says? Is there an age developmental uh, level that's required? Where does the child fit into this? So I think, importantly, there isn't necessarily a particular age, which is the right. complicated part about it, right. because it will be does the sh- child show the developmental maturity to be able to give a reflection of their authentic needs and feelings, which right. is, is a fairly vague term, of course, but it's because you know, you could have an extremely mature six-year-old or a very immature 13-year-old. So okay. chronological age doesn't necessarily dictate it. But the big thing that we really look for is, is the child being negatively influenced? Because what we realize is so difficult for children in these situations is, and they'll sometimes comment on it in, in the situation, is that they, they're aware of two things. One, they, if they're old enough, they're aware that as you tell them at the beginning, everything you tell me, I'm going to put it in a report. So I'm, yes. I'm telling you that up front so that you wouldn't feel betrayed or anything like yes. that. But So they're aware their parents will hear this and know this. And secondly, they're aware that what they say about one parent or the other is going to have implications for their relationship with the parent. So in cases of alienation, a child can often feel great love and warmth to their parent, but because they're worried that the alienator is going to be cross with them and be angry with them and be upset with them, they don't want to broadcast what their true feeling is. And so what we often look at is based on the family dynamics, is this child saying this because that's what they think their parent wants to hear and that's their way of keeping themselves okay and safe in a situation? Or is it a real reflection of how they truly feel uh, at this time? Because that's what's going to tell us, and and that's not always age-dependent, unfortunately. So so that's a judgment call that you have to make. And that's why I think the interactional analysis is is quite a key part of the assessment because – you know, there's so much nonverbal information that you can you can gather from those sorts of mm-hmm. interactions. Which perhaps, if the child is telling you one thing, but you see them with the parent and they are perhaps more inhibited or just um, you know kind of resistance a little bit, or the interactions a bit wooden, then that that's telling you something different. So right. I think that becomes quite important. And also, I think just on Anthony's point, I was I was thinking as I was listening to him that. What, what evaluators need to also bear in mind is that whilst you have to be upfront in the beginning that everything can go in a report. Right. It's not – I think there's a responsibility to to not include information that may be inflammatory, that doesn't have mm, a, mm. a constructive yes. role in, yes. in, in yes. Your, your evaluation yeah. mm. because that can happen. And, um, you know, I think it's – there is a responsibility on professionals in writing up the report and – Anthony sort of said, you know, you've got to stick to the, the mandate to yeah, to be sure. quite quite yeah particular around what you support your mm. well, your, I think your findings with. I think everything has to be defensible. Mm. Yeah, and so you've got to be able to say, this is my opinion; these are my reasons, mm. and you can stand by and you can you can actually look to specifics to say, well, these are my reasons because this is what I saw, this is what happened. Do you ever get into mediation? Or saying to people, you know, before we take this, maybe we need to 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 mediate because I I know that in Australia the issue is before you get to litigation, you go mediation. That's mm. what I've mm. understood, mm. and for me that would always seem to be a preferable course of action. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, <clears throat> I think that is the move here too. I think definitely the courts are looking to, and it's also about resources. So yes. and, the, and and how long a divorce takes to go through because right. there's just not enough time and space. Um, so the idea here is definitely moving along those lines that they want a pre-trial sort of mediation yes. before getting to court. Getting to and, court. and I think it is because it's such a backlog. And even right. even with the family advocate, I mean, it's well, the family advocate. I wanted to 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 ask we sort of, uh, you know just to note that the family advocate is there as the court's friend, so to speak, and to provide a non-funded uh, professional entity that can come in to look at. The same situation, but representing the court in a sense or the state. And so nobody's paying the state advocate. This is simply what the state offers. Would that be a reasonable assessment of what the state advocate is, is, is about? Mm, I'd yeah. say so. Yeah. And I, I, and I mean, there we're saying, well, nobody pays the state advocate. And they come in and they, and they do similar things, maybe not to the same extent, 
but they seem to also come up with, not seem to, they do come up with a report that also speaks to parenting arrangements and involvements. The challenge, though, with the with the family advocate is, and I think it's um, it's it is a starting point, but they are also very under resourced. Yes. So the time they can be spent on making quite a significant decision um, is, and, and you know, it's the frustration that, unfortunately, a lot of, I mean, in in, in my own personal um, frustration has been that there's no sort of state, um, for example, as part of, I mean, I, I saw it through working in states at the various hospitals, there's no real state-funded facility that can do what Auntie and I do. Mm. Yes. And so it becomes very prohibitive cost-wise. Um, yes. So often the only option is the family advocate, and they do great work, but yes. you get often, on, you know, it's two hours spent. No, it's under-resourced. Mm. There's and no there's two not enough people. And so, um, yeah, it's an, an issue. And, you know, it would be really great if, it, it could be more accessible. Sort I think of, it's uh, a, assessment. but I think that's a very important point that there's no equivalent of what you offer in private in the state mm. sector. Mm. And I think that that would be something that certainly would make a huge difference. So, you know, we're talking about training, we're talking about resources. These are, these are the kinds of issues that obviously would need to be addressed. There were quite a few questions that I didn't get to. I wanted to ask about, and I'll just mention them. We don't have to answer them. Issue of false allegations of sexual abuse mm. in these kind of situations. Mm. The changing role of fathers and the inclination still towards what they would call maternal preference. Mm. So I think these are issues which we haven't had an opportunity to unpack and those obviously are things that would take us a lot longer. So what is the ideal besides loving marriages and no divorce? I think it's a rhetorical question, but to quote from the Frank Sinatra song Love and Marriage, which became the theme tune for the TV series Married with children, love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. This, I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Well, I'll leave you to decide. Suffice it to say, divorce is never easy and where children are involved, all the more difficult. So to any divorcing couples with children and in the spirit of our very own Bill of Rights, please remember, a child's best interests are of paramount importance in every matter concerning the child when a couple divorces. They divorce each other, not the children. Anthony and Giada, thanks for joining us and giving of your time to share your knowledge and expertise. Greatly appreciated. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.